This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. You know, ultimately, uh, um, the Midwest is still really electorally important. Um, it's probably, you know, again, it, particularly if you add Pennsylvania to it, you know, you've got three of the core, real core swing states now, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Um, and so I think it's really worth looking at, you know, the, the trends in these places and how they're, how they're different or how they're similar. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong-Whaley. And I'm Kyle Kondik. So Kyle, let's start with the most pressing issue, which is one of the biggest elections of the calendar year. Um, that is next week's Wisconsin Supreme Court race. Uh, on ne- next week, voters will head to the polls to weigh in on what has been billed of one of the most important judicial elections of the year. Democratic-aligned judge Janet Protasiewicz is facing off against Daniel Kelly, a former justice who is effectively the Republican nominee in the contest, um, who is backed by conservatives. And of course, in this case, it's a high-stakes contest because control of the Supreme Court because ideological control of the Supreme Court is at stake. Um, Our colleague, Miles Coleman, wrote about this in the Crystal Ball this week. I wonder if you can start by talking a little bit about what he found um, in this contest, which is uh, going to be one of the most expensive in history. Yeah, uh, Miles did a great job uh, on that piece, and you know the 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 way the Wisconsin Supreme Court elections are done is that um, the candidates are not technically named as Democrats or Republicans on the ballot, but pretty much everyone knows what the, what they are. And these races have gotten more partisanized over the years, um, and the the control of the court is at stake. The Republicans have a four three advantage. If the Democrats win this race, they'll have a four three advantage that could have consequences down the road for um, redistricting. The, the maps in that state. Are, are you know, pretty heavily favor Republicans at both Congress and at the state legislative level. And we've seen um, Supreme Courts uh, uh, intervene against partisan, you know, partisan gerrymandering or maps that they view as unfair. Um, there's also a very old abortion law, pre-Civil War um, uh, law in the books in Wisconsin. The Supreme Court there may have something to say about that, particularly if it if it uh, becomes a Democratic-leaning court. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Um, these Supreme Court elections in Wisconsin, um, they always happen in the spring. And so they're, they can, um, give us a kind of a big election to look at um, in sort of an off time, which is which is where we are right now. You know, the, the spring of the uh, of an odd numbered year. But uh, what Miles looked at was just sort of where the votes come from, how different or or, or similar um, the Supreme Court results are to um, you know presidential votes or other federal elections. And you know what he found basically is you know the Democrats are very reliant in in that's in, in Wisconsin on Dane County, which is where Madison, the University of Wisconsin, the state capital is. Um, and also Milwaukee. And uh, Dane tends to sort of punch above its weight in these Supreme Court elections, and Milwaukee kind of punches below its weight in terms of population or in terms of votes cast. And so it wouldn't be all that surprising to see Dane cast similar number of votes to Milwaukee in a Supreme Court election, whereas in a presidential, Milwaukee's going to cast like you know, a hundred thousand more votes, or so, or something like that, um, and and so th- there's that dynamic. Um, also, there are some ancestral kind of partisan loyalties that maybe show up a little bit more in these races. So, for instance, a lot of counties in Western Wisconsin have swung toward Republicans in recent years, but in a Supreme Court race, you might actually expect 
the uh, the Democratic aligned judge to, judge to to win them or do better in those counties than say Joe Biden did. Likewise, um, they're very Republican suburban counties around Milwaukee, where you have seen some erosion for Republicans in recent years, but maybe they'll be a little bit stronger for Repo- the Republican uh, aligned candidate in the judicial race. So um, Miles goes through all that in his piece. I thought it was very well done. And if you need a little cheat sheet guide for what to look for if you're watching this election, which is really one of the big elections of this calendar year. Um, uh, you know, it's coming up on Tuesday, but uh, give Miles this piece a look. We will drop the link to the piece in the episode notes, of course. Um, I think one of the things to really pay attention to is that um, Judge Judge Prochazowicz, uh could also potentially carry some of the Trump won rural counties. And I recently listened to some interviews and she has been going out and doing a lot of outreach in those rural counties. So I think, uh, you know, Miles has to specifically pay attention to the state's western border, um, you know, but but she has also been doing a lot of outreach within her campaign. Um, of course, it's going to be the most closely watched uh, state Supreme Court race since 2001 in Wisconsin. Um, and and a lot of spending, especially by outside groups uh, in, in that race. Yeah, what we've seen, too, is that um, uh, the Democratic aligned judge, uh, 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 Janet Protaswich, uh, she uh, uh, she's raised a whole lot more money than Dan Kelly, the former um, state Supreme Court justice who lost a, a race in, in 2020. Um, but there have been a lot of outside groups, um, particularly on the conservative side, but on both sides that have come in to try to help uh, Kelly on, on the airwaves. And um, I think I saw that it's that the spending is like twenty six million dollars or something, which it really is, is quite a lot for a Supreme Court race. I think it's uh, probably mo- going to be the most expensive of all time. I know the, the previous record was a race way back in 2004 in Illinois. But um, and, and Kara, of course, you recently wrote about um, Supreme Court elections all over the country coming up in 2024, um, which was in the crystal ball um, fairly recently, too. The other thing I saw was uh, Kantar Media posted on March 29th that 28 over 28 million has been committed in ad buys too. So definitely, it's going to be the most uh, expensive race, not only in the state's history but but probably nationally. Yeah, and you know, again, these I think these races are taking on kind of more of a, a partisanized edge. Again, even though that this is not it's not formally a partisan race, but people I think rightly probably rightly view it that way. Um, and I know some Republicans have been sort of critical of the Democratic aligned candidate in that she's being like pretty avowedly talking about, you know, her kind of liberal positions on the issues. And that is that sort of, again, made it even more partisanized. But also there's frankly just a lot at stake with this election, too, and control of the court um, in a state where Democrats can do well statewide. But because of gerrymandering and also because I think the, the population is just sorted out in such a way that it's, it's maybe inefficient for Democrats. Um, you know, Democrats, I think, are relying on trying to win something like the state Supreme Court to try to, um, uh, to, to, try to have some more power in government. They do have the governorship, but um, Republicans have pretty big majorities in, in the state legislature. As Miles also notes in his piece, and, and you just said, you know, the stakes of these elections are higher because Supreme Courts are deciding more and more on on key issues that, that really matter in people's lives, whether it's representation through redistricting um, or uh, uh, reproductive rights. Um, and, and in Wisconsin, I think another key issue will be, you know, the 2024 presidential election, as we're seeing state Supreme Courts get cases about uh, challenges to election results. Yeah, I mean, one, you know, on the redistricting point, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court 
um, as we've talked about on this podcast, has um, you know declined really ever, but particularly recently to um, you know to, to try to limit partisan gerrymandering. But we have seen state Supreme Court sort of be innovators in this regard, um, constraining Democrat or Republican gerrymanders in uh, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. But then more recently, state courts have also constrained Democratic gerrymanders in New York and Maryland. Um, so Wisconsin could be maybe next on that list if, in fact. Uh, uh, the Democrats uh, win this win this race. Uh, you know, it seems like the Democratic candidate is favored. Um, that was also true in 2019 as well. And the Republican aligned candidate ended up winning pretty close elections. So I wouldn't necessarily rule anything out. But um, that's the general general feeling we get. You know, we'll see if that comes to pass. So, Kyle, let's move on and talk about your new analysis, which is regarding recent presidential voting patterns in the Midwest. And you compare some of the larger counties that end up that cast roughly about half of the statewide vote to the smaller counties that cast the rest of the statewide vote. I wonder if you can talk about why location and voting habits of the more populous counties um, in a state factors into the differences among the states. It's really interesting. I didn't quite realize this until I did the did the piece. Um, and uh, you know, if you look at it, so it was seven midwestern states, um, and the two bluest states in the region, of course, are Illinois, which is which has been a pretty reliably blue state for a few decades now, after being kind of more of a presidential bellwether in in the twentieth or for a lot of the twentieth century, and then also Minnesota, which Donald Trump actually came within a point and a half of carrying in twenty sixteen, but um, he voted for Obama uh, uh, twice, uh, you know, voted for Hillary Clinton, uh, and then uh, voted for uh, Biden by seven, which was pretty similar to. How Obama did in 2012. But if you look at where at least half the statewide vote comes from in both those states, it's really just counties right around the major metro uh, uh, area. So in Illinois, uh, Cook County, which is where Chicago is, casts almost 40% of the statewide vote. And if you add the so-called uh, collar counties that used to be Republican or now trending Democratic, um, you get almost two-thirds of the statewide vote. So Chicago really dominates Illinois, and it's pretty blue, and that helps explain why um, you know both the, the both the bigger voting half and the smaller voting half of, of Illinois are both the bluest in in the whole region. And Minnesota is kind of the same way in that um, about half the statewide vote just comes from, comes from, comes from five counties centered around uh, the Minneapolis St. Paul Twin Cities area. So even though the a lot of the outlying areas that cast the other half of the statewide vote. Um, have gotten redder in recent years. Um, the Twin Cities have gotten bluer, both the, the core urban counties and also the suburban ones. Uh, and so, you know, that, that you know, given the sort of difference between urban and rural voting in, in the United States um, and the trends in the suburban counties, um, it, it kind of helps clarify why those are, in fact, the two bluest uh, states in, in, in the region. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the methodology and how you went about sorting the counties into upper, you know, the, the more populous versus the, the less populous. Yeah, so I just sorted. Um, there's a great website called uh, Dave Leip's uh, Atlas of U.S. Presidential Elections. Um, and what you can do on that site is you can you just, you know, sort the counties by, you know, most most votes cast versus lowest votes cast. Um, and so I just started adding from the top until I got to about 50%. And so it sort of varied because I didn't split any counties. Um, but it just so worked out that it was basically a clean split, you know, 51-49 or 50-50 or 52-48 between the bigger voting counties and the smaller voting counties. And so like in Illinois, there are 102 counties, but th just three of them make up half of the statewide vote. Um, Cook County, you know, where Chicago is, and then then Will and DuPage, which are the two um, mo vote most vote heavy of the, the collar counties. 
But in other states um, like Indiana and Ohio uh, or Wisconsin, you have to get to maybe eight, nine or 10 counties um, to get to half the statewide vote. And, you know, what you find um, like like in Ohio is that, you know, if you just take the the top, the, you know, the top half voting counties, which is like, uh, you know, Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati and a handful of other places across the state, you know, those those counties are collectively pretty democratic. They're they're pretty similar to how the top half voting counties are like in Wisconsin and Michigan. The difference is that the bottom half counties are like a lot more Republican than the bottom uh, half counties in like Michigan and Wisconsin. And that helps explain why um, Ohio has sort of moved out of the really competitive zone for president, but Michigan and Wisconsin are still there. I was just thinking in terms of the methodology. So you go, you're, you select based on who actually voted. Do you, and and in presidential elections where there would be higher turnout versus a state or or local election, if you had gone by sort of census count of counties or had started with 2012 versus 2020, Hypothetically speaking, <laughs> you know, if if there were different methodological choices, do you think you would find any any differences? Uh, you know, you might. I mean, uh, you know, some of the uh, like one of the things we saw, we saw was that in Wisconsin, comparing twenty twelve to twenty twenty, um, Milwaukee County was the only county that cast fewer votes in twenty twenty than it did in twenty twelve. Part of it is that Milwaukee County is not growing, and in fact, it's lost a little bit of population recently. But also, I think that. Black turnout was really great for Obama in 2008, and particularly 2012, and then it just wasn't as good in 16 and 20. So, um, you know, Milwaukee cast fewer votes in 2020, um, and that was driven by a drop in votes in, in the city itself, as opposed to the, um, the the suburban communities within Milwaukee County. Um, you see something similar in, in Cuyahoga County in Ohio, where Cleveland is. Um, Cuyahoga County also cast fewer votes from, from 2012 to 2020. Uh, Cuyahoga County has been losing population. Um, but also, I think in the, in the city of Cleveland itself, you could see a you know, decline in, in, uh, in, in turnout, particularly, particularly black turnout. So um, that's part of the story. I think if you if you'd actually sort by like population, you might get uh, a slightly, you know, slightly different list. Although I did, one of the things that was interesting is that I, I based the the, the top fifty percent on the total votes cast in twenty twenty, and then I just applied that to twenty twelve. For the most part, the list of counties that cast the most votes in twenty was the same as, as in twenty twelve. Although there were, were some differences, um, uh, and you could one of the things you could really see is that um, some of the uh, kind of sub- growing suburban slash exurban counties in like like Hamilton County outside of Indianapolis. Um, Delaware County outside of uh, Columbus, you know, those counties are sort of shooting up the charts in terms of total votes cast just in the course of 10 years because they're they're, really eight years just because they're growing so quickly. Um, Likewise, you see some uh, some some kind of uh, uh, medium sized counties that are maybe maybe suffering from deindustrialization, population loss. They're kind of moving down. So like uh, Mahoning County, where Youngstown is in Ohio, that that's been sort of moving down the chart in terms of um, the total number of votes that that it casts. So um, you know, looking at the total votes cast, you know, it also does reflect the population changes, obviously, um, and you can sort of isolate the places that are growing versus the places that that aren't growing. So let's talk a little bit more about um, 
your home state of Ohio and Iowa, um, you talk about how uh, both of those states, the, the smaller counties, have zoomed to the right um, and, and really pushed them out of the roster of competitive states. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit, bit more about what's driving those changes. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think the Democratic Party just had a, a higher floor um, in those places, you know, 10, 10 years ago than, than they do now. Um, and we've seen throughout the country that a lot of um, predominantly white kind of more working class, rural and sort of smaller slash medium city um, counties have just been really trending toward Republicans, particularly in the Trump era. And there are just a lot of places like that in Iowa and, and Ohio. So, you know, for instance, um, uh, so you've got you know nine nine counties cast a, a, a half the vote in Ohio. So there are seventy nine um, uh, other counties um, that cast the rest of the statewide vote, and only you know Biden only carried a single county, Athens, which is where my alma mater, High University, is. That little blue blue speck in southeast Ohio, um, and even then, um, uh, Biden's margin was twenty points less than Obama's was, and it just you know reflects the. Um, the, the the just total decline of Democrats in those kinds of those kinds of places, and uh, you know Democrats were you know really reliant on votes in 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 those areas to uh, you know keep them afloat statewide, and so even though you do have you know there was a lot of Democratic vote in Cincinnati and Columbus and Cleveland, and if you go to Iowa, like you know the, the particularly Greater Des Moines, um, Iowa City, Johnson County, uh, where the University of Iowa is, is, is like a 40 plus point Democratic county now. Um, but they're just swamped by the um, by the collection of sort of mid-sized and smaller counties that are have just really moved really strongly to the right um, in recent years. And what about Iowa? What sort of changes have we seen there? Yeah, I mean, the, first of all, you have seen a decline even in some of the um, the most populous counties, um, particularly in eastern Iowa. Eastern Iowa used to be, you know, more Democratic leaning in presidential elections, but if you look at like um, uh, Dubuque and Davenport and Cedar Rapids, like you're just you're just seeing, um, you know, places that maybe still vote Democratic for president, but by much reduced margins than what they uh, than what they used to. And um, a lot of the the smaller counties that cast fewer votes, you know, Obama carried a lot of them even in 2012, and um, Biden didn't carry any, you know, mid-sized or smaller Iowa counties in in. Uh, in, in, in 2020, which uh, which again just tells you that uh, the, the Democratic floor in those places has just really fallen. As I was reading your your excellent and in depth analysis, I I was recalling the um, Trump campaign strategy memo from the primary in 20, uh, 2016, where they talked about you know really targeting low propensity voters um, in rural areas, and I wondered to what extent you think that you know the the Trump campaign and the Trump effect of of activating some of those bases to be more politically involved might be reflected. In, in the voting patterns and shifts we've seen? Uh, I think the Trump campaign was pretty smart, both in 16 and 20, about like where they visited, you know, where they sent Trump, because it wasn't like he was going in most instances to like big um, population centers. I think he was going to a lot of places that where that maybe aren't used to having presidential visits or aren't used to having the candidates come through. You know, he would, he would, uh, um, fly in uh, on his jet uh, and uh, you know do these rallies at airports and the airports were often in um, like I remember he did one I think it was in um, 
uh, uh, I'm, I'm blanking. I think it's Bay City, Michigan, or or that you know that sort of general area, kind of you know not in not in Detroit, but you know sort of outstate areas where there's like a decent amount of population, but these are also not huge population centers. But you know a lot of those places swung really strongly toward Trump, um, and I think you know again I don't. It's hard to quantify how much those visits and things actually matter, but I think those were the voters that the Trump campaign targeted, and I think you could see some some success there, even as um, you know, the, the Trump campaign and, and Trump as president kind of pushed away a lot of suburban voters. You know, I think you could see that Minnesota really stands out in this regard in that, you know, it goes from voting for Obama by like seven and a half to almost voting for Trump in 16. But then by 2020, things had sort of regenerated for the Democrats there in part because the suburban swing in the Twin Cities just really took hold in 2020 in a way that it hadn't in 2016. Some of that probably was also you know, third party voters moving from maybe voting for Gary Johnson or Jill Stein in, in 2016 to then just, you know, voting against um, voting, you know, for Biden and against Trump in, in 2020. But um, the thing is, is that, you know, Minnesota has a lot of those kinds of counties in, you know, the Twin Cities area, you know, other states necessarily, you know, don't. I mean, if you look at Ohio, like there are, you know, populous suburban counties around the three big cities but for the most part, particularly around Columbus and Cincinnati, they're red counties, and they're they're maybe maybe some of them are getting a little less red, like like Delaware and and Warren in uh, in in uh, Columbus and in Cincinnati, respectively. But but you know they're only taking baby steps, whereas like you know Mahoning County went from voting for Obama by twenty five to voting for Trump by twenty twenty. So you know there's these huge dips in. Um, some of what used to be the core Democratic counties in a state like Ohio, and there isn't a commensurate change in some of the, you know, the suburban core Republican counties, the way that maybe we've seen in like Metro Atlanta or Northern Virginia, et, et cetera. So, um, but, you know, ultimately, I mean, uh, you know, we didn't get into Pennsylvania in this piece, although I think we will in a, in a future issue, but, um, you know, ultimately, uh, um, the Midwest is still really electorally important. Um, it's probably, you know, again, it, particularly if you add Pennsylvania to it, you know, you've got three of the core, real core swing states now, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Um, and so I think it's really worth looking at, you know, the, the trends in these places and how they're, how they're different or how they're similar. Any final takeaways from your analysis for the 2024 presidential election? Uh, you know, I, one of the things that I think was positive for Democrats in 2022 is I thought that that, that year might be the time where in Wisconsin, the bottom just kind of dropped out in the rural areas and that, you know, the, 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 the Dane and Milwaukee vote wouldn't be enough to counteract it. And, you know, it didn't really, just really didn't happen that way. And, you know, Wisconsin seems like the one state where as if there's sort of like another round of rural realignment um, toward the Republicans, that that would maybe push that state more toward being a Republican leading state. Um, but again, we didn't, you know, we didn't see it in 2020 because because you know Biden won Wisconsin back narrowly after Trump had won it, and again we didn't really see it in 2022 as well. But the Democrats again are reliant on the big city or the big population centers in that state, but also they need to maintain a little bit higher of a floor in the rural areas. And again, they've been able to do that um, recently. Well, Kyle, as always, thank you so much for your fantastic analysis and expertise, and look forward to talking with you next week. Thanks, Kara. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. 
You can also engage with us on Twitter at center number four politics. Until next time, 